We are in one of the most powerful sections of scripture tonight. One of the most amazing books that has stunned people, believers or not, throughout history. The book of Exodus chapter 3. That scene where Moses, for the first time, has his encounter with God and it is awesome. So I encourage you to have your Bibles open, have your pens out and ready. There's a lot to take notes on tonight. In fact, I'm going to give you a basic outline that will cover four out of five parts of it tonight. And the fifth part we'll cover next week because it's too much all by itself. Actually, we'll cover part of it on Sunday and then the rest of it next Wednesday night. The call of Moses is what we're looking at. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, we're setting the call of Moses. God coming to him and calling him to be spokesman, deliverer. Of his people. Here's your basic outline to follow just in these two chapters. Number one, the circumstances of the call. The circumstances of the call. That's Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We'll cover and look at the circumstances of the call. Number two, the compassion of the Lord. And if you miss any of these, we're going to hit them as we go all the way through so you can can catch up as we go. Number two, the compassion of the Lord. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. The compassion of the Lord. Number three, the confidence of the name. Confidence of the name. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. The confidence of the name. So we have the circumstances of the call, the compassion of the Lord, and the confidence of the name. Anybody see a pattern here? We're using a lot of C's, aren't we? Because I want you to really see what's in these two chapters. Number four, the commission of Moses. Where God actually gets down to it and tells Moses why he's showed up and what he wants him to do. That's Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. The circumstances of the call, compassion of the Lord, confidence of the name, the commission of Moses, and finally next week, the complaints of Moses and the consternation of God. And that will be a fun study. That's Exodus chapter 4, the whole chapter, where Moses goes back and forth with God, telling him, I'm not your man, I'm not your guy, send somebody else, and finally God gets a little put out. But we'll see that next week. Before we open up and get into verse 1, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we are here to dig deep into your word. Because we know, Father, that as the psalmist wrote, that you have magnified your word above all your name. That your word, Father, is as important to you as us knowing your name. And Lord, we will look at your name tonight. And the importance of it. And what we draw from it. But Father, I pray that as we study tonight, you will pour your word over us like water. You will wash our hearts and our minds. Help us to see some things afresh and to see some things new. And to be invigorated and enlivened by these things. Not physically, emotionally so much, Father, but spiritually. I pray you will continue to ignite us as we seek simply to be about your business. Bless this study. Uh, Spirit, we just ask that you will be our teacher. And Lord, anything that you do not want said, block. And Father, in our hearts and our minds, help us to hear through your word and by your spirit the things that you want us to know. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now as you know by now, Moses is 80 years old. He is at the ripe age of 80. And here he is at the backside of the desert after 40 years of wandering, of sojourning. You may recall from our study on Sunday that he had a firstborn son whose name was Gershom. Gershom meaning sojourner. And he named him that because that's what Moses had been doing. Wandering around the deserts and the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. Seems like an awful waste of time. Here he is, the deliverer. I mean, he was already in Egypt. He was already set up as this powerful leader in Egypt. He would have been in line for the throne. And yet, God has him now in Midian, wandering around with no call, no direction. We know nothing, as a matter of fact, of his time in Midian, except that he marries and has a son, and and he's a shepherd. Does he talk to God? Does he pray in those 40 years? I would imagine he prays a lot. 
trying to figure out what went wrong in Egypt and why he's here and what he's supposed to be about and what his life is about. And just at that point where he might think, where you and I might think, it's over, I'm done, God shows up in the most powerful way imaginable. It's interesting to me, and I want to pause here for a moment and think about this whole wilderness idea. Because God has a tendency to do this with great leaders of his people. If you look through the Bible, Moses, the first one, wandering, well, Abraham, back before him, was a sojourner. Elijah was a prophet in the desert. John the Baptist, a voice of one crying, where? In the wilderness. The Apostle Paul, after his conversion, spends three years in Arabia doing what? Who knows? I believe he was having some intensive training by God at that time. What about the Apostle John at the end of his life? He's in his 90s and he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And there, there he receives the revelation. It is so interesting to me that God leads people into these wilderness experiences before before they're truly equipped to lead powerfully and to teach and to show the world around who this God truly is. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you really desire to be used of the Lord when He takes you into the wilderness. Because chances are very good it will happen. If it hasn't, plan on it. Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 tells us again that Moses is in the wilderness... And here's where we find him. And I wonder if you have been in these dry seasons. If you've spent time in the wilderness, times of wandering. And I also wonder for some of you, if you feel like you're there now. You see, because the wilderness experience, excuse me. The wilderness experience is not a place where you go and you're filled with wonderful, amazing things. A lot of times it's very dry. A lot of times you are without answers. As a matter of fact, it seems to me that in the wilderness, God is very silent. Why is that? Look at verse 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Let me give you some reasons, some notes about the circumstance of wilderness wondering. Number one, in the wilderness, we recognize the Lord. In the wilderness, we recognize the Lord. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15 tells us, For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Do you suppose that Moses would have turned aside to see this marvelous sight in the busyness of downtown Egypt? Maybe wandering through Cairo. Do you think there he would have even noticed a burning bush on the side of the road? But in the wilderness, Moses recognizes the Lord. Because there's no distraction. There's nothing else to do. The wilderness is boring. There's nothing happening there. Oftentimes when we're in those wilderness experiences, those are the times when we can actually recognize and see that God is here. That God is at work in the quiet calm of the wilderness We are free to see and hear from the Lord in ways that honestly we cannot in the cacophony of Egypt. You may recall that Egypt in the Bible tends to be a picture of the world. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And there he was tempted by the devil. This was not a wonderful, happy-go-lucky, spiritual mountaintop experience for Jesus. It was hard. He was under attack. And for 40 days, where was God? In the wilderness, we recognize God. Do you think shepherding is exciting? Have you ever watched sheep? Have you ever gone to the zoo and noticed that everybody just seems to head right for the sheep pen? That's where they want to go. And they just lollygag around there all day long watching the sheep because they're fascinating creatures. And they're not. They're boring. They don't do anything. They eat. They bath. That's about it. They make little messes. That's it. But in the still, still calm of the wilderness, uncluttered by the clamor, we recognize the burning of the Lord that we may miss otherwise. I'll tell you, I, I spent five years as a youth pastor in Anaheim, California. And when I went out there, I had my head full of all kinds of great programs and ideas and, ideas and plans and activities and an entertainment for these kids. Then I came into Anaheim, and it was a stunning revelation to discover that every kid in my youth group had an annual pass to Disneyland. 
How do you compete with that? How do you as a youth minister get kids all excited about banana night when they can go to Disneyland? You don't. And it was a stunning revelation to me at that point in my ministry that maybe, huh, maybe youth ministry wasn't about fun and games. Maybe it wasn't about entertaining. Maybe it wasn't just babysitting. Maybe there was something more to it. It it concerns me that in many churches today, it's not just youth ministry, but it's ministry in general that is about entertainment, and is about fun, and is about flash. I was speaking just the other day with Dave uh, Colburn. He was talking about, he, he does this ministry, Predators of the Heart. And I won't mention the church that he talked about, but he said he was down south of here, <laughs> and not on this island. And he was doing a program, doing this Predators of the Heart, where he has these live animals, amazing animals, and he's sharing them. But when he came into the church, he was there to, to deal with the kids and the teenagers, but in the main auditorium, it was set up like a nightclub. They had a, a secular jazz band playing, and they had the lights going on and everything, and they told him, and, I, and this is a church, they told him, hey, this is a invite-your-friends type of night, so when you do your Predators of the Heart, you don't need to mention Jesus too much. You want to kind of keep that, you know, not too much. And he was stunned. And I was stunned when he was telling me that. And we miss the fact that the church is not here to entertain people. We are here to be in the Word and to be in prayer and to worship the Father. And that's it. And it's pretty simple. In the wilderness is where we recognize the Lord. The church does not compete. It doesn't exist actually to compete in the world or to entertain the masses. We are here to outmaneuver the market researchers and the focus groups. That's not what we're about. But what we can do that nobody else can do. What we, what I learned in that youth ministry in California that we could do that Disneyland could not do was offer the truth. We could share the truth. And God says, Isaiah 55, My word will not return to me empty. My word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. In the wilderness, we recognize the Lord. But gang, recognition doesn't always guarantee response. Again, we live in a church culture that follows hard after experiencing God. And we don't always experience God in the wilderness. That's kind of the point of the wilderness, that we seem to be out there, alone, in the silence. But what about that? What about those seasons when I don't feel a thing, when God seems silent, when the desert is lonely and religious experience is completely barren? Flip in your Bibles to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. And let me encourage you in a church culture that, again, tends to follow hard after experiencing God, that sometimes is the very place of non-experience where we see Him. It's the very place of not feeling anything that our faith deepens. Psalm 77 and verse 1. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Just follow along. Listen to what he says. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. But my soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You've held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the days of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Listen to this. Will the Lord reject forever? Will He never be favorable again? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Have you ever felt that way about the Lord? Does God care about me anymore? Does He love me? I'm sensing nothing here. I feel so far from Him. This is right where our psalmist is. And he says, has his promise come to an end forever? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Or, worse yet, has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. But then the psalmist changes direction. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. 
Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Do you see what he's doing here? He goes halfway through this psalm, crying out, talking about his despair, his desert experience. I can't even find the Lord. Has he rejected me? Will his, are his promises over? Is this, am I done for here? Is this whole relationship with God nothing? It's in the wilderness. And what does he appeal? He appeals to the deeds of the Lord in the past. He looks back, and folks, number two, in the wilderness we root into the Word. Like a plant in a dry desert place, drawing its roots down as far as possible to find water. That happens when we're in the wilderness. We root deeper into the Word. That's what the psalmist is doing. I'm going to appeal to that which I know about you. I don't experience you right now, Father. I feel nothing right now, but I am going to dig deeper and know you better and look at what you have done. And by doing these things, I will be near you again. In the wilderness we root into the word. I'm convinced that God leads us into desert regions to teach us not to rely on emotion. Not to rely on feelings or experiences, but to root into his word and recalling who he is and seeing what he has already done. Then we experience God the way he wants us to. Then our faith deepens. There will be times in the Exodus, by the way, when I'm sure Moses will draw off of this experience of finally recognizing and seeing God. That he will draw off of 40 years of peace and quiet and wandering in the desert. When he will look back and remember it was during those days that God was working on him, preparing him, developing his heart. Well, Moses turns aside to see this marvelous sight. And by the way, that's interesting phraseology to me. The word turning aside there. It's just to turn And there's another word for that in the New Testament. The word is repent. Moses turns. And when he does so, he comes closer to the Lord. Number three, in the wilderness we repent to the Lord. We turn to the Lord. Why? Because in the wilderness there's nothing to flout. There's no one to fool with our outward appearances. It's just you, the Lord, and that burning bush over there. That's it. No one to impress. There's not the courts of Egypt. There's not Pharaoh's people. There aren't even the Hebrews there watching Moses. None of that. Just Moses and God. And in that place, Moses turns to see this great sight. He turns aside to the Lord. In the wilderness, we repent to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 tells us, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, Paul is writing. I don't rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now listen to this. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Worldly sorrow, that's just going to get you death. And despair, and guilt, and more sorrow, and more depression. But godly sorrow... Recognizing the sin in your life. Understanding you have failed. You have disappointed the Father. Knowing these things. Realizing you don't measure up to the holiness of God. That kind of godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, Paul says, leading to salvation. That is a good thing. In a world that tries so hard to get rid of guilt, God would say to us, maybe we should feel a little bit of guilt. Maybe we should have a little bit of that uncomfortable experience of realizing, I have sinned. Because if I get to that point, then I know I need God. Then I know I've got to repent. Then I turn to Him, and then I have salvation. It is the perfect but painful process of finding the Father. Well, back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Now, hang on a second. There's an interesting word here as well. The first word of verse 4, when. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. At that point, don't miss that it wasn't until Moses turned aside that God spoke. It wasn't until Moses turned to him and saw him that God spoke. It was at that point. Now, I mentioned before that the implications of the burning bush are many and amazing. Let me give you three quick pictures that I believe we can see fairly well in this revelation. In the burning bush itself. Three things that the burning bush portrays before we move on. Number one, the burning bush portrays Israel. The burning bush is a picture of Israel in the fire of Egypt. It's a picture of a people that are under tremendous persecution and yet are not consumed. They burn, they are experiencing the persecution of the world and have their entire history and yet they are not consumed even to the present day. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 20 The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession today. Egypt itself is called the iron furnace. It's the place of burning. It's the place of, of pain and sorrow, of tribulation for Israel and yet they were not consumed. Neither are they again today. J. Vernon McGee writes that years ago the emperor of Germany asked his chaplain the following question. What is the greatest proof the Bible is the word of God? And without hesitation the wise chaplain replied, the Jew, sir. The Jew. He is the greatest proof that the Bible is the word of God. Israel has been in the fire of persecution from the bondage in Egypt through the centuries to the present hour. But like the burning bush, Israel has not been consumed. And it's a miracle, folks. We have a present day living miracle before our very eyes that there is even a single Jew alive on the face of the earth is a miracle. When you look at their history and how hard Satan has tried to destroy the people of Israel. Well, secondly, the burning bush not only portrays Israel, but it also foreshadows Moses himself. We saw this a little bit on Sunday. That the fire does not come from the bush. It comes from the midst of the bush. And in the same way, the fire of the Father does not emanate from Moses, but from God emanating out of Moses. The fire in Moses, he becomes a fiery, fantastic, amazing prophet because God is in him in the same way that the fire is in the bush. But God does not consume Moses any more than the fire consumes the bush. I mean, to the point that Moses had to veil his glowing face so that the Israelites wouldn't be frightened when they saw him come down the mountain. Talk about the glory of God being in a man. He would go before God and come down glowing. Now, in Charlton Heston's version, his beard just got longer. That's not what happened here. Moses was glowing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 should tell us something absolutely amazing. Because, you see, Moses would glow and veil his face to keep the people from fearing the Lord. But Paul says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, that same fire that was in Moses that caused him to physically glow, that fire of God, the Holy Spirit of God, within each of us as believers, emanates out from us. Which is why when you go into certain situations, Jesus said, hey, don't be worried about what you're going to say. The Spirit in you will tell you what to say. Your job is to make sure that you're in the Word in times like these, so in those moments when it's required of you to speak, the Spirit has something to tap into that you've already got. By the way, I don't think the Holy Spirit is just going to give you stuff that's not there. He's going to use what you retain, what you've learned, what you've studied. He's going to bring to mind those things that you have drawn off of His Word. But if we're not in the Word, how are we going to know? Your best training for evangelism is not going knocking on doors and following a pattern. Your best training of evangelism is being in the Word. Because the Holy Spirit will bring it to mind at the right time. The burning bush foreshadows or portrays Israel, it foreshadows Moses, and finally and powerfully the burning bush portrays both sides of God. What do you mean, both sides? 
Fire in the Bible reveals wrath and judgment. Fire in the Bible is always a picture of God's wrath. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, By His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And Hebrews 12.29 tells us our God is a consuming fire. A picture of the powerful wrath, the judgment of God. And the bush itself, the bush itself, the thorn bush, the acacia bush, which we talked about on Sunday, that bush of thorns, symbolizes the sin. It's a picture of the sin. Our sins that wrap the brow of Jesus on the cross. The thorn in the Bible pictures sin. So you've got this, this judgment of God, the wrath of God, fire, surrounding this picture of sin. But here's the wonderful other side of God. It's the mercy and grace that does not consume. We should, folks, when we come before God, we should be consumed. By all rights, we should not even be able to approach the Father. And yet it's His grace and mercy that allows us to draw near to Him. This fire, though it burns hot and bright, does not consume. For God is not only a God of wrath, but a God of mercy. He is the perfect blend of judgment and mercy. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Which brings us to the next point in our outline, the compassion of the Lord. The compassion of the Lord. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses, that, that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. He was afraid to look at God. There's an important balance here between familiarity with the Father and approaching the holiness of God. It's important to remember that although we are created in His image, He is still completely other. He is still more different than us than we will ever be like Him, even throughout eternity. We will always be amazed by God. We will never be fully comprehending the vastness of who He is. Joshua chapter 24, verse 18. The people say to Joshua, The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites, who lived in the land. And the people say, We will also serve the Lord, for He is our God. I love this. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. Well, that's interesting. Well, we're supposed to serve the Lord. You can't. <laughs> People of Israel, you may want to serve the Lord, but He's a holy God. What are you going to do for Him? He's a God who has everything. What do you have to give Him? He is a holy God. Don't miss that He is a holy God. When we begin to understand God's holiness, like Moses, our arrogance shatters into brokenness and humility. What does Moses do? He hid his face. Because at the moment he recognized that he was in the presence of God, even in his presence, he couldn't look. It stunned, it frightened him. Isaiah, in his first experience with God, said, said I'm a man of unclean lips. David wrote, Who am I that you would visit me? Peter said, Go away, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And John, the apostle, fell down like a dead man when he came into the presence of a holy God. Holiness. Moses' reaction and response here is not only appropriate, it's typical of what happens when a man comes into the presence of the Lord. The last 20, 30 years in the church, a lot of good things have happened. A lot of good things. And especially in the movement of the Jesus people and, and coming closer to God and recognizing we have a relationship with God through Jesus and becoming more familiar with God and seeking intimacy with God. Wonderful. It's one of the best things that could have happened to the church. However, sometimes I, I fear we've tipped the balance in the other direction. And we have forgotten the holiness of this God who we serve. He is both. We draw near to Him through Jesus. But we recognize His power, His authority, His holiness in our worship and it's probably wise for us that though we seek intimacy not to become too familiar but to respect and awe the Father verse 7 then the Lord said I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt 
and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their suffering, the compassion, compassion of the Lord. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, before the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, Check that out. Before their cry even came to him, he already cared. He was already looking to release them. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Verse 10, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring out my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. The compassionate commission of Moses by God. Remember, 40 years earlier, a headstrong Moses was ready to take on the, all of Egypt. Well, not all of Egypt. He was ready to take on a single Egyptian. But it was a start. And he was looking for something to do here. And now we see a different Moses. An overwhelmed, frightened, reluctantly humble Moses as God begins to lay out this commission. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? At 80 years old, Moses says, who am I? 40 years before, he's saying, I'm the guy. It's me. I can do this. And now, a very different picture. Which reminds me that the most qualified men and women are always the most reluctant when it comes to serving. When it comes to ministry. And especially when it comes to titles. Those who are most qualified to do it tend to be most reluctant to do it. Why is that? It's because they're aware of their frailty. They're aware of their lack of ability, their unworthiness to serve the Lord. The people of Israel, as Joshua, we saw a few moments ago, jumped up and said, we're ready to serve him. And Joshua says, you can't. They probably could have done with a little more reluctance at that point. But someone who leads, that's what we look for. That's what, by the way, I look for in our elders, was reluctance. I mean, it, it really it would have concerned me if, with any of those five men, if I said, hey, what would you think, would you consider, would you pray about, would you think about being an elder for this church? If any of them said, right on, I was waiting for you to ask. I'm ready to go. Where do I sign? Do I get a t-shirt, elder, you know, little button, something? Where do I sign? I want, I want to do this. This is great. Every single one of them to a man said, oh, I don't know about me. What? Russ still calls himself EIT, Elder in Training. (laughs) I love that. That's the heart of someone that God can use. So God responds to Moses loud and clear. Moses reluctantly says, who am I? And God says, it does not matter who you are. It's who I am. It is who I am. Look at verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with you. Now watch this, don't miss this. This sign, this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Okay, he's going to give Moses a sign. This will be great. It's like a mark on the forehead. Will it be that his staff blows? What will it be? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. What? What kind of sign is that? That doesn't help me right now, Lord. That sounds great a few years from now if I can pull this thing off. But right now, that's a sign? That's exactly right. God says, the sign that I am with you is something that's going to happen in the future. In other words, you're going to have to trust me, Moses. It's going to take a little bit of faith. The sign won't happen right now. The sign will happen then. But by the way, and this fascinates me, the sign will be the fruit of Moses' ministry. That's how Moses is going to know that God has been with him. Moses will be brought to a place where he can look back and say, Wow, God really was here. He really did commission me. He's not going to know that right up front. It's going to have to be an act of faith that Moses walks out on. But later, when he stands on the same mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments with all of the three plus million people of Israel at the foot of the mountain, then he'll know, Yes, obviously, this was of the Lord because I could not have done this. How do I know? How do I know that God's call is actually God's call? I've asked that question I don't even know how many times over the last year. How do I know it's really the call of God? How can I be sure that I heard clearly the direction of the Lord and it's one word, fruit? Fruit. You see it. You know. We step out in faith, we follow in faith, but ultimately God confirms with fruit. 
Jesus said in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. By the way, just a reminder of what the fruit of the Spirit is. Galatians 5.22 Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 5,000 people at your church, gentleness and self-control. Did I just read that? The fruit of the Spirit. How do you know you're walking in the Lord? Let me ask you, is your love increasing? How is your joy? Your peace? Your patience, your kindness, your goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, are you self-controlled? These are the things that let you know, yes, I am walking in the Spirit because I've got the fruit of the Spirit. It's hanging off me all over the place. If it bears no fruit, it is probably not the leading of the Lord. And the Lord says to Moses, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I sent you when you stand back on this holy mountain with the whole congregation of Israel. Fruit. And you will see the result of my leading and Moses, frankly, of your faith. Well, Moses is seeking some immediate reassurance. He wants to know, who am I? How can I do this? He wants to know and God responds. God gives him reassurance. He gives him a sign again that I said will come after the fact because faith always precedes fruit. We don't start out with fruit. You don't toss an apple seed into the ground and immediately dig up an apple. Faith first. Fruit comes later. The Lord's statement required great faith for though it might be something Moses would hope for, it was certainly something that Moses could not see. And that's the definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1, It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Moses seeks even more reassurance, more confidence, and God brings it in his name. The confidence of the name. The confidence of the name. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. By the way, real quick, if you look back at verse 6, isn't it interesting that God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, I don't have time to go into it right now, but I believe right there that God is referencing the Trinity. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in each one of those three relationships, we see the Father at work, the Son at work, and the Spirit at work. I would encourage you to look at that on your own time and maybe study that a little bit. It's fascinating. Back down to verse 13. The God of your fathers has sent me to you, Moses said. I'm going to go, I'm going to say this. And they may say to me, what is his name? And Moses says, what shall I say to them? And you're asking me to go on this mission to lead these people out of Egypt. Who do I tell them sent me? In verse 14, one of the most famous verses in Scripture, God said to Moses, I am who I am. First time I read that as a kid, I thought God was just saying, look, shut up. (laughs) I am who I am. Well, you need a name now too? This is it. But there's so much in what he's saying. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me, has sent you, or me to you. It's interesting, the people of Israel never asked Moses this question. Moses said, well, who do I tell them sent me? They never ask. They don't ask who sent him. They don't question. It, it never comes up. God knows this. God knows they're not going to ask. He could have told Moses right there, look, they're not going to ask my name, so just, let's just move on. But he gives Moses something, a great gift, a great confidence. He is still building up in Moses this understanding. It is not about you, old man. It is about me, and it is about my name. I am that I am, which is the tetragrammaton, that's what it's called. That four-letter word in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, or Jehovah. Actually, we don't even know the correct pronunciation. Because the Jewish people, in their respect of the Lord, saw his name as so great, so phenomenal, so powerful that they decided they needed to drop the vowels and not speak it. They would only write it. And just the Tetragrammaton, just those four letters. And over the years, who knows what exactly the speaking of his name is, how you actually say it. It's a great mystery. The ineffable, unspeakable name of God. And Chuck Missler writes that the Hebrews revered the name of God so highly they refused to pronounce it. They put the Tetragrammaton in the text that is Yahweh or Y-H-W-H and over the centuries they have forgotten how to pronounce the name. The irony is that we're not sure how to pronounce it because they revered it so highly they felt it was unpronounceable. But, and that they were not worthy to pronounce it. But here's the good news about the name of God. 
We do know his name. We even know how to pronounce it, don't we? Yeshua Mashiach in the Hebrew. Jesus Christos in the Greek. Jesus Christ. We know the name of God. We can speak the name of God because we have seen this God become flesh and live among us. Yeah, what about that claim that Jesus is God? I mean, I know some of you Christians buy that, and I know some of you Christians have heard that, and you're not sure how to prove it, but I know that people say that Jesus is supposed to be God. How do we know for sure that Jesus is God? What proof can you give? And I love when people ask that question. Back when I first started in ministry, it was a very difficult question for me to answer because I didn't have the resources. I hadn't studied the word enough to see and to know and to hear how clear the word is, how absolutely matter-of-fact the Bible is that Jesus is God. He leaves us no doubt, no question. And the Apostle John left little, little doubt. We have several of our ladies who are studying through John right now. Let me share something with you. And you may have heard this, ladies, if you're studying with uh, Beth Moore. But the Gospel of John, the Gospel that John wrote, is organized in a fascinating way. In the Gospel of John, there are seven incidences across the Gospel. Each of the seven incidences leads to seven miracles. Each of the seven miracles give rise to seven discourses. And each of the seven discourses, in each one of those, we find seven I am statements. And this is how John wrote the Gospel of John. And here are the seven I Am statements. Let me give them to you quickly if you want to jot them down. The verses are up there. All those John verses behind me. Number one, I am the bread of life. John 6.35 In other words, Jesus says, I'm the substance of life. I am what you need to survive. I'm the bread of life. John 8.12 Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He is the illumination of life. He is the one who helps us to see clearly, to understand fully, to know Him better. And then in John 10.7, He says, I am the door. He's the entrance to true life. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. He is the protector, the caregiver, the one who watches out for the dumb sheep who tend to walk off the cliff, as many of us have done in our lives. John 11.25 I am the resurrection and the life. He's eternal life in and of himself. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the very meaning of our existence, the meaning of life. And in John 15.1, the seventh I am statement in the book of John, I am the true vine. John 15.1 I am the true vine. He is the source of life. You become disconnected from the vine and you will die. But if you are connected to the vine, Jesus said in John 15, I will abide with you. My Father and I will come and we'll take up residence in your heart. We will be among you. And to cap it all off, if that wasn't enough, Jesus' words leave us with no option as to who he is in John chapter 8, verse 51. Let me encourage you to flip over there quickly. John 8, 51. And watch this. Jesus, Jesus was a man of great compassion. Jesus was a lover of people, a healer of the hurting. And yet there was one group of people that Jesus was rather put out with most of his ministry. I would imagine that similar to a good example would be George W. Bush in the first debate, Jesus many times looked like that. <laughs> And we know it because he said, how, long, how much longer do I have to put up with you? I'm tired of this. The religious people. Not just the religious people, but the religious leaders who should have seen him coming and missed it completely. And with that frustration, Jesus has this amazing conversation. They're back and forth and they start calling him names. Beelzebub. Aren't we right in saying that you have a demon? And Jesus, verse 51 of John chapter 8, will pick up right there. It says, Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. And the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death? Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? Jesus knows who he is. 
verse 53. No, I'm sorry, 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. Ouch! But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Truly, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying. And regardless of what the poll said the next morning, he won that debate. Jesus won. Loud and clear, I am. It's not just bad English. Before Jesus, before Abraham was born, I was. Would be the correct pronunciation. But the Lord says, no, before Abraham was born, I am the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And it blew them away. It freaked them out. Therefore they picked up stones, verse 59, to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now don't miss this, because this is, I think, the most important thing. At least it was for me in this study. The implications of God's name for us right now in this very moment are immediate. They are immediate. The Lord, by very definition of His name, I am, is now. God resides in the now. Not yesterday. Not tomorrow. Oh, but He's... Doesn't it say I was and I am and I am to come? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, the picture. That's God is then and he is then and he is now. But his name, his name is now. To the Hebrew, the name was not just what you called someone. It was the definition of a person's character. Which is why God changed Jacob's name to Israel. No longer will you be heel catcher, supplanter, but now you're going to be Israel, a prince of God. Now you're mine. The name needed to be changed because the name denotes character. And God says, my character is now. It's immediate. It's present. It's not I was. It's not I will be. It's I am right now. Now that's great news. And the reason is because I think for most of us as Christians, the now is our biggest struggle. We know we've been saved. We can look back in the past. We know our past is covered by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And I can draw all the way back to when my dad baptized me as a 10 year old. That day that I accepted the Lord for the first time. And I know I was saved. That was then. We also don't have a whole lot of trouble with the future because we know that our future rests secure in Jesus. Ephesians 2 verse 6 tells us, And God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm fine in the past. I'm great in the future. It's right now that I'm having a little trouble. It's today that I am struggling. And God says, guess what? Today is where I am. Right now. Right now. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, however you pronounce it, resides in the now. And this isn't just Moses' confidence when he goes to Egypt. It is our confidence in his name. This is the confidence of the Christian to walk today. Not yesterday, not in the future, but right now we walk with a God who is a God who is I am. And the immediacy, the immediacy of His name is our confidence. I'm not looking for God to show up. He's here. I'm not wallowing in the recesses of religious remembrance. He is now. And my friends, God wants, us, he wants to deal with us now. Now hear me on that. He wants to deal with us now. Don't miss that. He wants to deal with us now. Oh, I, you're talking about in the, the general presence of life. No, I'm talking about this very second. While we're talking and having this conversation, God wants to be here. And God wants to deal with you personally right now. Because He is. This is the best place for God because this is where He is right now. He's not a few minutes ago and He's not when you get home tonight. He's right now. Now when you get home tonight and it is the now, there's, He's going to 
he'll show up again because that's where he is. He's always in the now. And folks, God will deal with us in the now if we will allow him to. If we'll let him. But we tend to be kind of good at putting him off. I'll pray with him when I gather with, with the elders next week. That, I'll, I'll make sure and get some good prayer time in there. Driving along and thinking, I really need to spend some time with the Lord. Well, I'm going to carve some time out tomorrow to do that. And God's going, hello, I am right now. What are you waiting for? What is, you know, what is more special about tomorrow than today? I am. And gang, I'll share this with you. It's the greatest struggle for me as a teaching pastor. This is the thing... And I ask Cheryl every time we go home, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, we're driving home, and I always, you know, it's kind of quiet in the car, we're driving along. And I look over and I say, so, um, how'd it go? <laughs> and I'm not asking, how was it? I'm not asking, how was I on or was I off? It doesn't matter. What I'm asking is, do you think that people did more than hear the word tonight? Did they take it home? Will they live it out? Are we to become doers of the word or are we just hearers of the word? That is is what I struggle with. It truly is. Will this impact what we're doing? Will this affect me now? James chapter 1 verse 21, James wrote, In humility we received the word implanted. I like that. Which is able to save your souls, but... Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You know what that implies? It implies that you can show up at church time and time again and hear the word over and over and still delude yourself. The way you don't delude yourself, the way you don't miss the word, is you become a doer of the word and not just a hearer. James says anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And that's not a bad thing for some of us. (laughs) You look in the mirror and you kind of want to forget what you just saw. (laughs) But God says, through James, he's saying, this is the problem, though, with Bible study... And not taking it with you. You can be like a person looking in the mirror. Wow, let's, let's take care of that. And oh man, I'm really going to make sure I get that haircut, and I have my eyes changed, and I get that surgery, and then we go away and forget all about it, and we get busy doing other things, and none of it happens. But the doer of the word, the doer of the word is different. James says, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This person will come back to the mountain, stand there like Moses, with all of Israel below, and say, wow, there's fruit in this. Because that person heard the word and acted on it. What if Moses never went back to Egypt? He had the option. What if Moses walked away from the burning bush and went, wow, what an experience. (laughs) What a great talk I have with God. That Bible study was intense, dude. (laughs) And he lies down in his tent, and the next morning he gets up, and he goes out to take care of the sheep. And sometime during the day he says, that burning bush was really cool. And his sheep wanders off, so he has to chase after that, and nothing happens. Israel never would have been saved. And I wonder how many people never will be saved because so many of us are hearers and not doers. I'll tell you, there's a way for this church to ease down into the comfy recesses of religion. Here's how we do it. All we have to do is become forgetful hearers and not effectual doers of the word. Now you may say, well that's interesting side note, but what does that have to do with the great I am? Again, the great I am wants to deal with you now. He wants to go with you now. He wants to work with you and be a part of you and, and function in your life now as a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Bible study, folks, is conversational, by the way. It's between you and the Lord. It's not between you and me. I'm up here just pointing out these things. I hope that through Bible study, maybe you just get caught up in prayer. And five minutes later, you're like, oh man, where is Rick? I can not see I was with the Lord. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's why we put the verses up there. If you get lost with God during this, that's wonderful. Because he wants to deal with you right now. Well, verse 15. we got to go. Okay, here we go. 
God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then he says, and listen to this, This is my name forever, I am. Which means he always is now. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. You want sublime confidence, Moses? You want absolute trust? You want peace in the faith that you have in me? You'll find it right here in my name, I am, that I am. And tell the same to the sons of Israel. And I would say, tell the same to the people of Jesus. I am that I am has sent us. So in this confidence, God moves on to commission Moses. So we come to the commission. The commission of Moses, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Folks, the commission of Moses begins with visitation. Isn't it awesome that the first thing God wants Moses to tell the, Israel, the elders of Israel is not I'm getting you out, it's I care about you. Before he lays out the plan of the escape, which he's about to give Moses to share with him, he says, first thing you say to them, the first thing you tell them is I, I have seen, I actually have visited you. I care about you. I'm concerned for you. I am concerned about you and what has been done to you, he says, in Egypt. And that word concern is the very exact same word that's used in Psalm 8.4 when it tells us what is man that you would take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him, that you are concerned with him. Literally the word is pakad in Hebrew and it means visit. What is man that you would visit him? And God says, I'm concerned for you. I have visited you. And what did God do in the incarnation of Jesus? He visited us. He cared for us. He was concerned about us. And John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and tabernacled literally among us. Pitched his tent among us. The great I am is also the great visitor. And he would say to any of us, as he says to me tonight, Rick... If you'll turn aside and come to me, I will care for you, for I have visited you. And by the way, it's not just to the battleground states that God pays a visit. Number two, commission of Moses extends with a vision. It not only begins with a visitation, it extends with a vision. God visits the children of Israel, but he gives them a vision. Here's where you're headed. This is what's going to happen to you. Verse 17, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Parasite and the Hivite and the Jebusite and the Termite and the Flashlight to a land flowing... I just can't, every time a rag got it, do that. Okay, so to a land flowing with milk and honey. To a land flowing with milk and honey, verse 18, he goes on and says, They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt. And you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Let us go three days into the wilderness and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what this is about. Is God just trying to pull a fast one on on Pharaoh? Get him out and then run for your lives, kids! You're free! Forget the worship time, we'll do it later, run! Head to the mountain! He's supposed to go before Pharaoh, Moses is, and say, God just wants us for three days in the wilderness. We know that God wants him forever in the promised land. Not three days in the wilderness. So what's going on here? What's this about? Is God deceiving? (laughs) Was this really his original intent? God is not deceiving. But God is revealing. He's revealing ahead of time. And this is important to note. He is revealing the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. God is going about a plan that will show the people of Israel and will likewise show us today that Pharaoh was hard-hearted long before God hardens his heart. And that's a passage that people struggle with that we'll deal with as we come up to it. Because the book of Exodus tells us God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. You know what God is doing here? He's showing the people of Israel Pharaoh's heart is hard. So when God hardens his heart, all he's doing is acting on the natural inclination of the man's heart already. When God went to Judas, or when actually Satan entered Judas, 
We say, well, that's not really fair. How, you know, Judas was chosen out ahead of time. Did he have any choice? Absolutely he had choice. But his heart went exactly where his heart was inclined to go. And at the time that Satan entered the heart of Jesus, Judas, Judas had already made that choice. He was ripe for it. And so Pharaoh's heart is going to be hard. And God uses this process. Just ask him for three days worship. And let's see what he does. And we know what Pharaoh's going to do. What do you think, Pharaoh? Can you spare three days? I mean, we've been in bondage for 400 years. How about three days off? Would that be all right with you? Just a little vacation for the people of Israel? Is that a possibility? By the way, Bible students, you may recall that another man took a three-day journey to set free a group of captives. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 tells us, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Interesting. And he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, Paul says, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. What captives here is Paul talking about? Captivity captive. Jesus, in that three-day period between death and resurrection, descended. And one of the things that he did was led a host of captives. How's that? People ask this question all the time. I'm going to give you my opinion. Rick's theory on it, and I'll give it to you very quickly, that the people, the captivity captive, those who Jesus led out, were those who were residing at that point on the paradise side of Hades. Now, for some of you, this is just going to be confusing, and you're going to have to ask me later, and we'll, we'll go into it. In short, the Old Testament picture of death was Sheol. The New Testament picture of death, the Greek word Hades, a waiting place for the dead. But Jesus opens wide that picture for us in the parable of Abraham and Lazarus, Lazarus and the rich man. When he says that the rich man dies and, and the poor man Lazarus dies and Lazarus goes to be with Abraham in paradise on the paradise side of Hades and the rich man's on the other side. And the rich man calls across the gulf and says, hey, can you dip your finger in the water for me, Lazarus, and let me sip? And, and Abraham says, hey, we can't cross this gulf. And so the rich man says, hey, can you go back and send somebody back to tell my brothers this is horrible? And what does Abraham say? They have Moses to tell them. Moses and the prophets, they've got the scriptures to tell them. But Jesus, it blows it open. He says, you know what, Hades is much more than you thought. It's not just a waiting place for the dead. It's a place where there is paradise and there is torment, depending on the person's future. Well, what's the deal with that? There's a place, gang, where the faithful Abraham, the faithful Isaac, the faithful Jacob, Daniel, Elijah, Moses, when they died, a place that they went a place where they could reside, a place of the dead. But they weren't just mixing it up with the Hitlers of the world. They were in paradise because that's where they would end up. A paradise-like place, as Jesus describes in the parable. And when Jesus dies, he goes down and leaves out captivity captive. He leaves out a host of captives. Three days. Three days in the wilderness, so to speak. He goes down and leaves them out. And effectively, I believe, my opinion, you don't have to agree... But effectively at that time shut down the paradise side of Hades for there was no need for it any longer. For the faith of Abraham finally found its fruition in the redemption of Jesus on the cross. He couldn't be with God the Father in heaven until the redemption had happened and that happened on the cross. And after the cross then Jesus could go right down and grab him. Okay gang, it's time to go home. Which is why the Apostle Paul can now say, hey, when I am alive, I am absent from the Lord. But when I'm dead, to be dead in the body is to be present with Christ but what about the torment side of Hades the torment side of Hades I believe is still operational and will be until the time of judgment and I don't believe that the torment side of Hades is even close to what final judgment will be the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16.10 You will not abandon my soul to Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so Jesus himself takes a three day journey to release the captives. Again, what about those who do not believe? What about those of the Old Testament times and pre-Christ who had no faith in God? They are still awaiting their day in court and they will get their day in court. They will have every opportunity. Revelation chapter 20 tells us 
to plead their case before the Lord. And I ask you tonight what I have asked before. Would you rather plead your case or would you rather have Christ plead your case for you? I take redemption. But like Moses, the freedom of Christ's journey, the freedom of Christ's journey, listen to this, would be much grander than just three days. It would lead the captives into a whole new land. Verse 19, we'll finish up. But I know, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. And the compulsion is dramatic, we'll see that. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Don't miss this. It shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. And thus you will plunder the Egyptians. You know what? There's another parallel here that fascinates me. They don't go empty-handed. They go with gifts. They take gifts out of Egypt. And what is it that Ephesians 4 also tells us? That Jesus not only sets free the captives, but he gives gifts to men. Gifts to the church. Apostles, or prophets, evangelists, teachers. He gives gifts at that same time. And we're going to see in chapter 4 that Moses is given some amazing gifts. God says, Moses, you and the sons of Israel are going to spoil Egypt. You're going to come to the land flowing with milk and honey. He's giving this amazing vision. But you're not going to come empty-handed. The Egyptians are going to send you away with all kinds, all manner of gifts. He's going to bend the heart of the Egyptians toward the Hebrews, make them feel bad for the 400 years of bondage, and start, man, take our gold, take our clothes. Your son looks a little ragged there. Here's a nice outfit for him. And off they're going to go. And how did Moses respond to this great commission? Come back on Sunday and we'll talk about that.